The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we talk to BBC4 controller Richard Klein as the review show says farewell to BBC2. Plus, why we should be thanking Simon Cowell for the first global upswing in music sales for 13 years. And did Seth MacFarlane really boob at the Oscars? Answer, yes. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And I'm delighted to welcome this week Sam Steele, former Radio 1 producer and one-time Channel 4 radio exec and Media Guardian's very own Josh Halliday and Lisa O'Carroll. Welcome all. Josh, you were at the Brits last week and the Enemy Awards this week. Which, which was better? Oh, the Brits, it's just all about all the glamour, isn't it? I sat next to a lad who had a dicky bow tie on at the enemy oh, thank goodness. last night. He was the only <laughs> man in there. <laughs> Wonder where that was going. <laughs> no, he was kept very clean last night at the enemy Awards in a new, in a new home in, in the Troxy. I mean, it was nice, but not, nothing on the Brits. Lisa, Sam, any awards action from you guys? No, no, my awards days are behind me, actually. Well, I think mine are ahead of me. <laughs> but, but only I like to think that. Uh, anyway, we begin this week with the end. It's not quite the end of the culture show, although you might have thought it given some of the coverage of the 19-year-old arts programme switch from BBC2 to BBC4. Not only that, the once-a-week programme will go monthly, which is what really got some people's goat. More goats later, by the way. Anyway, the change was announced this week at the launch of a new season of arts programmes on BBC4, which is where I caught up with the channel's controller, Richard Klein. I kicked off by asking him for some of the highlights of his new season. Coming up... Uh, in the new year. We've got a whole host of new shows, including a celebration of Joan Bakewell's uh, contribution to uh, broadcasting. So we've got a Bakewell at the BBC night coming up. Uh, We're also looking at um, doing a season on theatre. The National Theatre is 50 years old this year, so we've got a a great new arena on the National Theatre. And we've got two or three programmes about Greek theatre. And finally, uh, a rather quirky film about two young actors, a kind of bit of a buddy movie, who decide to find out about Shakespeare, interviewing a whole host of actors on Shakespeare. We've also got a really a sort of charming season called Beautiful Thing, which is really a focus on some of the uh, more exotic arts pieces that most people might call, I suppose in the modern parlance, bling. Uh, but actually things like porcelain, which when you look at it in detail, are not only incredibly hard to make, but really are actually rather beautiful. And in that season, we've got a, a film about uh, Fabergé eggs and also a rather crazy film about um, mad King Ludwig's schlosses, his German castles, which again, when you go into detail, are extraordinary. Um, and finally, we've got um, a season of films about sort of very high-end artists, uh, uh, William Turnbull being one that's sort of conceptual uh, sculptor. So there's a whole range of different programmes coming up on Beauty 4, uh, which we're, we're looking forward to presenting to the audiences. And the review show, which is currently on BBC Two, is moving to BBC Four, and it's currently once a week, but now it's going to be once a month. Tell us about that. Well, what's what's happening is that all of the review show hours, which is about thirty hours across a year, the whole lot, including all that, all the money that pays for that, is moving across from BBC Two onto BBC Four. Uh, and, have, and having the opportunity to kind of rethink how we present topical arts in an age of, of Twitter and blogs and so forth, where if you like, a lot of that stuff gets out very quickly. How do we try and uh, do topical review and reflect the arts culture of this world, of this world uh, on television? So one thing we're going to do is we're going to move uh, the review show from its current slot at 11.20 on a Friday on BBC2 and put it in prime time, BBC4, Sundays, most uh, monthly Sundays at probably 8 o'clock. And we're going to increase it to an hour. So once a month, there'll be a proper one-hour show in prime time review. Then we're also going to review uh, the sort of the, the world of arts out there through 
other kinds of programs, including a thing called What Do Artists Do All Day, which is an opportunity to see, to see modern artists, applied artists, a whole range of different uh, types of artists as they make different objects uh, uh, and their artwork. We've got a film uh, with uh, Norman Aykroyd, for example. We've got another one with Jack Vetriani and so forth. And finally, we've got a, um, a, a half-hour series called Secret Knowledge, which is where we get experts to spend, it's almost like an illustrated lecture, to spend a half-hour on one thing only in a particular exhibition or gallery or indeed somebody who, who, who loves a, a particular poem to kind of explain it um, at a time when it is particularly topical. And finally, we, we're doing um, some opening nights. Uh, we're going to go to some of the bigger galleries and, and museums when they have a big opening evening, could even be a film. We will do a one-hour, not quite live, but pretty much the night after, uh, shown on BBC4 again in prime time. How easy or difficult will it be to do a review show on a, on a monthly basis? Were you tempted not, not to have it at all, or is it a sign that you've kind of moved on from several people sat around a desk, you know, sort of chewing the cud? I think the review show itself will probably have very many... It'll look very similar to the review show you see at 11.20 on on BBC Two on a Friday. It's just that I think that in an age when you have tweets and you have blogs and so forth, we have to rethink a little bit how we review topical arts, as it were. You could argue once a month, once a week, it, it, it doesn't make that much difference, I don't think. What we're really trying to do is make sure that we give an audience facing response to culture across Britain, keeping it topical, uh, at the same time as retaining some of those. So, we will be having, for example, the sort of eclectic mix that you get in the review show. It will be, you know, Arctic Monkeys on the, uh, um, uh, a new film, uh, Harry Potter, uh, and uh, that very difficult, you know, new theatrical piece that's playing in the Sage. Uh, so, we'll keep the flavour of it. My thanks to Richard Klein there. And if you're wondering what the noise in the background was, that was the removal man at TV Centre. Um, Sam, if you were Richard Klein in charge of BBC4, what would you do with the review show? I'd put it in the bin. Actually, I can't see why on TV anybody would want to sit and watch people having a conversation around a table. That's what we're doing on radio. It's what you listen to. It's not what you watch. Uh, TV has to be much, much more dynamic. It's uh, 2013, not 1910, isn't it? Uh, So it's a very old radio format that was transplanted from radio to TV that should really go back to radio. And they should do something really exciting and interesting and vibey and artsy that's visual. TV, that's what I think they should do. So I don't think anyone really cares about the review show. Around this table, if we do a quick straw poll, when was the last time anybody watched it? I watched it a few weeks ago, but I have to say, you just reminded me, Mark Lawson's front row on Radio 4 is fantastic. He had Nicole Kidman on this week talking about her two new movies, and it was really compelling listening. And I think the other thing with the review show, or the culture show, Friday night... It's complete accident. It's an accident whether you're in watching TV on Friday night, isn't well, it? Well, no. Most people on a Friday night don't want culture, do they? they yeah, want copious I mean, amounts of alcohol. The, the scheduling was I want all sleep. wrong. <laughs> scheduling was all wrong, and I think the um, once a month will be a disaster. Um, I r- love BBC Four, um, but if you have an appointment to view like Saturday night, Borgen, The Killing, whatever you're into, you come, you you look forward to Saturday night, but you forget if it's once a month. You know, the fade factor will be I very that's strong. Right. I don't think it's a disaster moving from two to four because, uh, you know, we live, everyone's got multi channel TV now. So uh, it's not the backwater that some people seem to, seem to make out. But the, the problem is going from weekly to monthly. And you mentioned uh, the Mark Lawson show on Radio 4, which was a nightly show during the week. Yeah, but and it's so early can, evening, you know, when you're cooking or whatever. It's perfect compliment. Yep. So, Sam, you, you said they should just get rid of it entirely. But do you think, you know, it's too embarrassing for the BBC to actually do that? And they need sort of a, a, a fig leaf, as it were. And they haven't got the. Uh, well, I mean, especially with Lord Hall coming in, who's uh, the new director general who's come from the Royal Opera House, a man but, who but presumably likes his arts. His, his brief at the Opera House was to make opera more popular and less elitist. And so uh, hopefully he will 
rip the fig leaf away because it is vanity programming, uh, a review arts show. Uh, and if your show is getting less viewers than Channel 5 on your Oscar night special, that suggests that there's something really quite wrong with it. You know, maybe time to pull the life support plug out. OK, well, also this week, some good news for the music industry after global music revenues rose in 2012. Big deal, you might think, but it's the first time this has happened in 13 years. And it was even better news for the British music industry, which dominated the list of worldwide top-selling albums in 2012. One Direction, yeah, no surprise there. Adele, yes, and uh, Josh, Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart made a guest appearance, yeah, in the in the top ten. With his Christmas album, who'd have thought it? Christmas album, it went down a storm apparently when it was released, I didn't buy it myself. Did you listen to it, John? Uh, no, I missed it, I missed Did it, you? I was listening to Supertramp. It was popular worldwide though, uh, and you know, it was one of many British artists that did well uh, last year and helped the global um, music industry to record its first rising revenues, as you say, since 1999, uh, when it was Britney Spears and Boyzone at the top of the charts. I had to refresh my memory for that. Britney Spears and Boyzone. Well, Sam, you're clearly the person to come. What happened to them? <laughs> We're saying I look old, or something. <laughs> no, because you're ex-Radio 1. When, when, back in the days when Radio 1 used to play that sort of thing. How very Possibly. Um, <clears throat> well, I mentioned Simon Cowell at the top there, but obviously he's the man behind One Direction. So you know, all, all hail the, the karaoke king. Well, Boyzone and, and uh, One Direction, you know, same, same band. Every generation has their own boy band. It's no different from the Monkees or the Partridge family. We just have got these lovely, very pretty five boys who in one week have gone from being the um, crowned at the Brits, they are single-handedly um, rescuing record sales globally, and then last night they were they were the villains at the NME Awards, weren't they? And they got uh, voted world's worst band or something, so they are both saviours and villains, all in one go. That's right, but what's interesting about the comparison with Boyzone is that there's an extra element in 2012, which is obviously the internet factor. They've got something like 6 million followers on Twitter, which is 40 times more, apparently, than David Cameron. Uh, their videos are viewed on YouTube millions of times each day. They, they post Instagram updates hourly so people get a real insight into what's going on in their lives. You know, you can follow them as if they're your best friends. And that's something that Boyzone didn't have in, no. in, in 1999. In fact, One Direction don't really need the army of publicists they've probably got because they're generating their own interest. What do these figures tell us about the uh, the music industry's uh, you know, ongoing battle against uh, digital piracy? And, and uh, there's not much mention of physical sales in there, you said. Yeah, that's right. There's no mention of physical sales because it's usually an annual wine fest, this uh, report. Uh, they were very keen to stress the digital elements of that uh, they now say is saving the industry. You know, for the past decade, they've been uh, complaining that it's throttling the industry and killing sales uh, more and more. But now they point to uh, iTunes and Spotify and say this is this is the future, and these sales prove it. And yes, it was only a 0.3% increase in in total revenues, but it's something to shout about, I think. And uh, I think it does uh, point to a real uh, turning phase for for the industry. What I think is very interesting about these figures is 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 that they are global record sales, and uh, if pop music is the cutting edge of culture, um, what it really demonstrates is how global the economies are becoming. That that a boy band can be number one in so many different countries, with thirty six mm-hmm. countries, um, uh, or Carly Rae Jepsen's "Call Me Baby," you know, sold twelve point five million copies around the world. Pop music now is is international. It's not uh, held back by language or culture, and 
it's leading the global economy or it's it's a massive part of the global economy isn't it and yeah. I think that's quite fascinating that's right um, I think India is one of the fastest growing um, pop music markets around the world and you've got places like uh, Scandinavia where uh, Spotify and other streaming services far outstrip um, downloads uh, as a way to listen to music it shows how across the world people are listening to music in in completely different ways you've got St- Scandinavia where subscription services are far outstripping downloads and America and the UK which are slowly moving that way and India which is the fastest growing in the world uh, and so it's a really interesting time for the industry and I think they're going to have a lot to shout about uh, next February as well. Uh, Josh, you mentioned Spotify there and the whole kind of streaming thing, which I still struggled to uh, certainly put into practice. Uh, I can just about grasp the concept. But that's an area that Google is uh, is going to get into, we hear. That's right. And it would be a massive game changer if Google moved into this area. It would be as big as Apple when it launched iTunes. It would do for music streaming, which is currently populated by a number of smaller players like Spotify, there's Deezer and, and Audio. Uh, And it's taking off in, as I say, Scandinavia uh, and slowly in the UK. But if Google moved into this area, it would be uh, a big game changer. But I think the industry is slightly loath to hand the keys to this empire to to Google too readily because um, there's two sides to the Google story, really. It's hugely powerful when it comes to what it could do for digital music given that all the Android phones that it sells activate in one million each day, apparently. Uh, but in the second, uh, on the other hand, there's a huge problem with its search results. You know, it's so easy to find pirated music on uh, Google, uh, on the internet through Google uh, these days, and it's something that the industry hasn't been able to convince Google to tackle uh, comprehensively yet. So it'll be interesting to see how these negotiations um, play out, but I think we can expect some news later this year, which will be a, which will be a big milestone for the industry, I think. And Lisa, talking about illegal file sharing, as Josh was there, there have been some moves in the High Court today to crack down on this. Yeah, there were. There was um, a High Court judgment uh, giving the uh, rec- main record companies, EMI, Universal, Warner, etc., a blocking order against uh, or forcing six ISPs, Sky, BT, Virgin Media, TalkTalk, Talk, etc., ordering them to block access to three peer-to-peer um, file sharing sites. None of which I'd ever heard of, but apparently they're quite popular. Cat that's that's good one. to know, Lisa. It's reassuring to know you, 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 you haven't heard of these sites. None I of us have either. Um, yeah. cat, well, Cat, actually, I looked it up on Alexa. It is something like the 114th most popular site in the world. But the two others, Fenopi and H33T, weren't so popular. But nonetheless, it's a um, it's a significant ruling for the, for the um, record labels. And it's the third one they've got in the last two years. They've um, already successfully... Uh, blocked access to Pirate Bay, which would be the absolute marquee um, in in pirate music and movie sites. I think lots and lots of people are familiar with that, again, based in Sweden. And then before that, there was a site called Newsbin 1, which was closed, and swiftly followed by Newsbin 2, um, which last November announced it was going to close. So I think the record companies have successfully used the courts to stem online piracy. Well, effectively, though, they're playing whack-a-mole, aren't they? Every time they whack one down, another one comes up. And it reminds me, do you remember in the 1980s, not you, Josh, obviously, too young. I was there for um, two years. Home taping is killing music, you know, don't, don't make music. Yeah, the skull and crossbones and on, on record labels, you know, on, yeah, oh, and record look, it, music is still here, and in, and in a year where global music sales have increased for the first time in 10 years, um, doesn't that suggest that actually music piracy and illegal downloads is, is, is actually a bit of a red herring? Well, I, th- I think what was interesting, I in, in, into, interviewed Troy Carter, um, uh, Lady Gaga's manager, a few months back, and he's an investor in Spotify. 
among other things like Somali, that great new British website. But he was saying, and I think it's interesting, that the Spotify uh, business model is really interesting. It's called a freemium model, so you pay a subscription yeah. for unlimited music. But he was saying it's the quality of the recording that people prefer that. He's, you know, they've obviously done an awful lot of research. Lady Gaga is totally into social media. has got her own social media um, website, littlemonsters.com. He's predicting that that is going to be the business model of the future. And in a way, that could kill iTunes because iTunes is all about um, downloading individual albums, whereas Spotify, Spotify is about renting them, really. It's about listening to them. Yeah. You never own them. Uh, it's it's a very uh, mobile, sticklebricky kind of yeah. media that you can make into lots of different shapes. Yeah. Um, but the, the point about piracy is that intrinsically... 80% of humanity kind of wants to do the right thing and play fair. We're built to play fair. So people do prefer to pay if they can afford to. And the people that can't afford to tend to be early teenagers, you know, the, the 10 to 20-year-olds well, without sites, jobs. I was looking on Alexa.com and saying these sites were popular mainly with men, childless men with low income. So teenagers, I guess, uh, male teenagers. Yeah, with low income. And, yeah. and they listen to music, and as soon as they can afford to own it, they go and buy it, because there's still a status associated with owning something, even if it's a download. I'm not sure in, about that. In terms of affordability, though, the, the reason why Spotify uh, is so popular is because it gets £9.99 a month for unlimited, unlimited access, yeah. as you say. And a, a regular album these days costs about £99 itself doesn't it I mean for nine ninety nine a month you yeah, can download also as much how, as you want those of us who did grow up with CDs and before that final how often do you actually replay you know you do get bored with your music collection you just want to refresh it all the time and occasionally you'll go back and watch in John's case super listen to Super Tramp or something indeed yeah well I, you know, I, I joined up Spotify but I spent the entire time listening to the same Waterboys album so a complete waste of money <laughs> I could have bought it for less than a month's subscription so which is a <laughs> but I, I listen to it for free actually I don't mind the ads uh, at all and uh, yeah. I quite like listening to it for free I haven't got around to getting a subscription yet I haven't made my mind up but one in five of Spotify users have been tempted to pay which is quite a, that's a, a significant conversion significant conversion rate yeah that's right and I think if Google managed to do that with its hundred millions of, of Android users, the industry would be very happy indeed. But one reason why people downloaded in the past was because they wanted their music on the go and they weren't able to get it you know, through legitimate means. The industry has moved to a position where it's allowing that yeah. to happen through licensing new exciting services that instead of, as you say, conspiring in this game of whack-a-mole, which seems slightly regressive, they are still doing that. Uh, a little bit, but they've moved to more proactive measures of uh, trying to uh, encourage these new services to flourish and, uh, and get on everybody's mobile phones, which is where the future is. Well, we should move on. And also this week, Google, Facebook and Twitter were ordered by their police to remove photographs purporting to show one of James Bulger's killers. Um, Josh, tell us about this, if you will. That's right. Uh, so on 14th of February, Valentine's Day, I think pictures emerged of uh, what appears to be John Venables, the killer of James Bulger. And uh, Twitter moved very, very slowly indeed uh, to take action against these. Well, it didn't uh, take any action. It didn't take any action at all, that's right. I mean, it's based in California, so the, the Attorney General swung into action uh, and pledged to launch contempt proceedings against anyone who'd uploaded these pictures because it's an offence. Um, and then last week, the uh, police took the unusual step of getting involved uh, and, and writing to these uh, three companies, Google, Facebook and Twitter, and ordering them to remove uh, these pictures from the internet. This issue uh, has appeared again, and it looks set to uh, come to a head this year, I guess. 
And this touches on two issues, is it? One is the uh, is how much people are aware of the laws, a particular law of libel, people who go onto social media, and the other thing is uh, how much the you know the big ISPs like Google and uh, and Twitter, how much they're prepared to take action, how much are they prepared to censor what their users put online? That's right. And and there was an interesting blog post that actually pointed out that it's Google's algorithm and Twitter's algorithm that's breaking the law. It's not the company itself. It, it, it's the company because it owns the algorithm. But when we do a search on Twitter, it's this algorithm that pulls the, the most interesting, the most relevant results for us. In this case, it was pictures purporting to be of, of this man uh, and shows it to us in breach of the law. Uh, some action will have to be taken against these companies because they do have the technology to block certain search results and filter search results, as, they, as Twitter does in Germany, for instance, with uh, uh, tweets about Nazis. Uh, it blocks those in Germany, but it allows them in UK because they're illegal in Germany, but not illegal in the UK. Lisa, you wanted to come yeah, in? Yeah, I um, uh, was doing something on the same story um, earlier, and I spoke to a couple of lawyers, one of, oh, one of whom has been involved in um, some high-profile high cases with Google. There's one a couple of weeks ago which um, ruled that Google had been too slow to remove um, potentially defamatory remarks, and this involved um, it was Google versus Tamiz, and um, they'd taken five weeks pe- um, between the complaint being made um, about comments being made on a blog in London to um, actually taking action. There was, there's a gap of five weeks, and the Court of Appeal said that was too long, um, and the guy had a case. But on the Twitter front. It was said to me by a lawyer who's, um, who was very familiar with this, that the problem with Twitter is, and Google and Facebook and Zynga, none of them have, are incorporated in the UK. They don't have any assets in the UK. This is a criminal as opposed to a civil charge, and you can't take action against a company that doesn't have assets in the UK. Um, so it would require extradition, it would require you know, an international effort. But I think at the end of the day, as Josh says, this is, you know, it's a question of what sort of moral obligations these companies have if they feel morally obliged to remove Nazis, reference to Nazism in um, the, in Germany, surely, to goodness, Twitter should realise, you know, how incendiary this thing about Jamie Bulger's killers is and should have moved to act. To act. They can act, but they don't act. That's right. I mean, they're not just morally obliged, they're legally obliged to act. But the other part of this is... Well, legally, that's this, this lawyer was saying that, you know, maybe, mm. not, maybe they're not. Mm. They're not incorporated in the UK. Yeah, I mean, but as a media company, and they are a media company, uh, distributing the information uh, in the James Bulger case is illegal uh, to anyone. You know, this injunction granted in 2001, I think it was, um, bars everyone. It applies to everyone. It applies to each one of us on this podcast, even though we don't know it. But the other part to this, which I think is interesting, is that there's just absolutely no uh, understanding uh, for most Twitter users about the law. The laws of libel, the laws of contempt, they could be in breach of all these laws, you know, uh, in just 140 characters. And they, and they wouldn't know unless, you know, the police, uh, they got a knock on the door from the police the next morning. So there's a lot of education that needs to be done. Uh, and I think we've got a long way to go yet before uh, reaching a sensible conclusion on it all. And separate but related to this is the legal action that Lord McAlpine's taking against people who um, libeled him on Twitter. Well, Sally Burko is one of these people who doesn't seem to understand the laws of libel yet. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Lord McAlpine said he would drop. Uh, libel action against 
uh, Twitter users with fewer than 500 followers. Um, a very compassionate action, you might think, uh, but said he vowed to continue action against Sally Burko for her two tweets, I think it was, uh, and he's demanding 50 grand in libel damages from, from Sally Burko. Uh, I think she's attempted to settle out of court with him, but he's he's so far refused. And I mean, it'll be very interesting high court trial when it when it comes up later this year. One of only few a handful uh, that involve libel on Twitter. And you could say the Attorney General, you know, he was away on holidays last week, came back um, very very swiftly, um, came out with this um, announcement that they were going to pursue individuals on Twitter or online. They didn't mention Twitter, um, and they those those people, if they are UK residents will be arrested and they will probably go to court because he wants to make an example and draw a line under this. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and we can't let this week go without uh, reference to Seth MacFarlane's um, Oscars um, disaster. It was dubbed uh, the meanest in history uh, with a catalogue of, um, uh, well, what do you call them? Highlights, lowlights, uh, only one of which we can mention here, was, which was the opening song, um, uh, We Saw Your Boobs. Sam, it kind of felt like he was kind of uh, trying to out Gervais, Gervais who's um, had some uh, forthright uh, turns hosting the Golden Globes, for instance, but uh, this time around didn't quite come off. Well, I so I remember um, Gervais hosting the, the Golden Globes and, and I remember watching it thinking it was very funny and then reading all the headlines and, and you know, America didn't get the joke. And So with Seth MacFarlane, you have to try to... Um, get the wheat from the chaff really um americans treat their award shows with some degree of reverence it would seem and they don't really like satirical comedians ripping the mickey out of them uh but in this case i i watched a bit of the oscars and i switched off because i actually found it quite distasteful and i thought it was quite lazy casually misogynist you know um, a little bit racist, uh, and it, it just wasn't—it wasn't clever. It wasn't thoughtful. Everything was in a pre- everything was just a little bit wrong, wasn't it? Lisa, it's tricky, isn't it? Well, I mean, what do you want from an awards host? C- clearly not that, but uh, you know, I mean, I find myself sometimes you think, oh, you know, you turn out O'Leary at the National TV Awards is just a bit, you know, kind of straight ahead. Uh, Stephen Fry is kind of funny. Graham Norton, I quite enjoy, you know, and then you so, so it kind of leaves you pining for someone like Gervais and a bit of bit of spark. But then you then then you get too much. Yeah, you want clever, and sometimes there are other people. Alan Carr um, or um, Jimmy Carr. I mean, he can be really um, biting, but he's clever, isn't he? He's not, as you say, with you due know, respect to Alan Carr. He's, yeah, I'm sure due, he's very good as well. Yeah, yeah. And I do remember, <laughs> you know, Jimmy Jimmy Carr being like quite offensive at an award ceremony years ago, but he was still funny. I saw Jim, James Corden at the Brits uh, last week, who I expected to be... Always going on about the Brits. I Sorry, know. it's the, the second <laughs> clang. Um, no, it, I... Just dropped something there. I, I dropped a huge one. Uh, yeah, I saw, saw James Corden at the Brits, um, and he was fantastic. He seems to have turned it down a little bit, and he was what you want from a host. You know, it turns funny... He kept along you know, straight lines and he went off piece on a couple of points. And you don't want them overly clever like Stephen Fry. Well, the thing about be... James Corden is that he's a real fan. You can just tell that he loves music. He's really excited to be there. So yeah. he is like watching you if you were at the Brits. That's mm. that's what makes uh, him so great at doing that. And uh, that's it's very hard to compare these award ceremonies because everybody in the room is chattering away as you're trying to deliver your lines and they're all getting more and more merry and drunk uh, and by the end of the evening, you're virtually shouting to get their attention. Mm. So it's a really hard gig. Uh, and I know lots lots of comedians and lots of people that we booked. When I worked on the NME, we did the NME Awards. At Radio 1, we did awards. You know, I've been in, involved in a lot of award ceremonies. And I know it's not easy, but 
I, you know, I just think everybody thought that Seth MacFarlane was just not funny, was it? It just wasn't funny. Well, I have to present, I say, the Broadcasting Press Guild Awards in two weeks' time, uh, Sam. So uh, what, what's your advice? Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Get yourself a good scriptwriter. Oh, well, thank <laughs> All right, great. Well, a huge vote of confidence in my abilities there. Thanks, Sam. Thanks very much. Um, well, that's enough awards for now. Just time for our Media Monkey quiz before we turn our thoughts to television. Uh, question number one. Who is going to play Cardinal Richelieu in the new BBC adaptation of The Musketeers? Bzz, bzz, Malcolm bzz, bzz, bzz. Oh, Steve Lamack. Surely. <laughs> no, obviously. It's Malcolm Tucker, who looks yeah. like Steve Lamack, though, Does doesn't he? Bit. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. Well, his real name is? Peter Capaldi. Right, yeah. Josh gets the point for having a, a real person rather than a fictional Sorry character. I didn't buzz. But... <laughs> yeah, please, in the future, if you could. Uh, actually, you've got a bell, uh, Josh, so right. um, if you could ring. Um, thank you. Question number two is um, which Channel 4 executive has just been hired by the BBC to be its new Managing Director of Finance and Operations? I think that's a big silence Oh, no, 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 it's the lady, but I can't remember her name. What? I can't remember what her name is. Um, Right, it's Anne Bulford. That's it, Anne Bulford. Anne Bulford. (laughs) Edit that in. Edit that in. Was she Channel 4 when you were uh, Channel 4 Radio? Good colleagues, yes. Uh, I'm telling you, you were. No, she was, she was, yes, no. And uh, and I think that it's an inspired appointment. I think she'll be brilliant. That's what they need at the BBC, is a big woman to go in there and and shake up those little boys. Could be the first future female DG, do you think? (sighs) Should get my vote. And finally this week, question number three. Who caught Nick Clegg by surprise on his LBC phone? (gasps) Buzz, buzz. Cathy from Dulwich. (laughs) Cathy from Dulwich, a.k.a. Cathy Newman from Channel 4 News. Well, that's it. I think it's one point each. That's very. Um, the ladies have it this week, actually, in Media Monkey Queers, don't they? Well, Anne Bulford, Kathy from Dunwich. Excellent. Well, that's it for this part of the show. My thanks to Josh Halliday and to Lisa O'Carroll and to Sam Steele. The Guardian Changing Media Summit is your chance to rub shoulders with the biggest names of today and the brightest stars of tomorrow. Join hundreds of media executives at the Guardian Changing Media Summit, our biggest media conference, here at The Guardian, London, on 21st and 22nd of March. Speakers include Linda Grant, Managing Director, Metro, Jason Titus, Chief Technology Officer, Shazam, Michael Comish, CEO, Tesco Digital Entertainment, Paul Keenan, CEO, Bauer Media, Olaf Swanty, CEO, Everything Everywhere. To save 30%, book with a colleague or become a member of the Guardian Media Network for free. Hundreds of senior delegates have already booked their place. Don't miss out. To find out more, visit guardian.co.uk slash changingmediasummit. Well, it's time to talk television now, and I'm joined by The Guardian guide, Rebecca Nicholson. Hello. Hi. What's coming up on the small screen this week? Let's plunge straight in. Let's plunge straight in with uh, Broadchurch. ITV's big new drama. They've been trailing this for weeks and it seems like they're really kind of excited about it. It's got a great cast. It's got TV's beloved Olivia Coleman, TV's beloved David Tennant, uh, Vicky McClure from This Is England is in it. It's, what a cast. It's a great cast. And the story is that uh, a child has been murdered in a small town and it's the effect that this has on the community. Now, I wonder if I have a heart of stone <laughs> because I found myself thinking this is very plodding and dreary and I'm not expecting it to be hilarious given the subject matter I suspect that that's not that's not going to happen but it's just so grim and it's an eight-parter eight one hour which is quite unusual I think for this sort of thing isn't it especially on ITV I don't know what 
eight hours of relentless misery. I don't know how it's going to sustain it. And I actually found that it it felt ripe for parody quite early on. I was half expecting Uh-oh. French and Saunders to kind of pop out and and you know have something to say about it. I think I, there's a key moment where I think it might be a detective is talking to an ice cream uh, van man about something very serious, and then at the end they just go, "Thanks for the 99." <laughs> it's just things like oh, no. that. I, I mean, I don't. Um, yeah, I had such high hopes when we began this conversation. Me for this, too. Uh, I mean, perhaps it will improve, or maybe I do just have a heart of stone. But I wasn't won over by this first episode. Okay, so that's Broadchurch on ITV, which is, of course, a Broadchurch. Thanks. Um, and uh, next up, now this is, uh, is a programme, I think, uh, it's already been in the US. Uh, I'm Nashville. guessing this is what you're going to talk about next. Yeah, this Nashville. Is, yeah, Nashville. Well, I feel like this is more of a public service announcement because it's not the start of the series. It's actually been on for uh, four weeks now, so next week will be the fifth episode. But I just think that everybody should be watching it. It's one of the... Uh, because obviously the nature of this job means that you tend to watch TV out of sync with everything else. But Nashville's the one thing that I set my reminder for and I watch it every week with uh, with my flatmates. The songs are fantastic. It's like a soapy, Dallasy kind of big camp drama, but set in Nashville against the country music scene. With songs. Uh, with songs, but the songs are great. They're not kind of Glee style auto-tuned. There is some auto-tune, but that's actually, that's a plot point. It's kind of... It's uh, accounted for. And I went online to see who was writing the songs because they're so great. And it turns out the Civil Wars have been involved. Elvis Costello's been involved. I mean, these are really good songs. They they stand alone, from separate from the show. Um, the cast is great. There are some brilliantly wicked uh, face-offs between characters. It's just wonderful. And I think everybody should be watching it. And I've seen it described, uh, obviously, as a country in Western Glee, but it sounds like uh, you're suggesting it's rather better than that. Oh, it's far better than Glee. I mean, for a start, the songs are better. The songs really could be released, I think, and have a a strong chance of success on their own. It's great. And where are you setting that on your EPG? Is that on More 4? It's on More 4, 10pm Thursdays. Public service announcement (laughs) completed. I really hope this gets a ratings boost. (laughs) And there is a new... Uh, well, I'll look out for it next week and we'll report back on the, the influence yes. of Nicholson on Media Talk. You have to see what you... I would like to know what you think. If it goes down, I might forget to include that in next week's uh, show. But, um, <laughs> and uh, finally this week, there's a new sketch show coming to uh, Channel 4. And sketch shows are kind of... Well, there's plenty around, but uh, maybe not in the mainstream like they used to be. Well, I, I'd say they're kind of overdone and slightly unloved at the moment. They're, they're not very fashionable and there doesn't seem to be anything that's particularly pushing the boundaries with sketch shows, it seems to have gone back to kind of cosy tea time impressions. And this is Anna and Katie, uh, Channel 4's new duo. And it's Anna Crilly and Katie Wicks. Anna Crilly was Magda in uh, Dead, uh, Lead Balloon, Jack D's sitcom. Oh, OK. Yeah. And she's great in that. She was very, she was very much a scene stealer for me. Um, this is really promising. It's very strange. A lot of it's spoofs of television shows that are on at the moment. And they're, some of those are done quite straight. So there's a... I mean, straightish. There's a, a spoof of the Great British Bake Off, which just involves cooking rice, which is funnier than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and then some of them are just very, very surreal and weird. And I think they're more successful. They're more kind of Vic and Bobby. Um, there's one, a German countdown. Again, a lot funnier than it sounds. And it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> follow any kind of logic. And it's brilliant. I think mm-hmm. it's m- much better when they do that and there's another one that's a, a daytime a morning breakfast show and the presenters look like Lorraine Kelly but speak with Jamaican accents and occasionally flash the camera and that's it <laughs> and it 
but it, even now it's making me laugh. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and so just because we did this for Nashville, when's Anna and Katie on and when's uh, Broadchurch on? Uh, Broadchurch is on Monday at 9pm on ITV. And Anna and Katie is on Wednesday at 10.35pm, so you'll have to stay up late. Well, that's way past my bedtime. That's way past yeah, mine too. I'll sacrifice news night for that. Uh, Rebecca, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to all our guests who were Josh Halliday, Lisa O'Carroll, Sam Steele and to Rebecca Nicholson. Also thanks, of course, to BBC4 controller Richard Klein. You can leave your comments on anything or indeed everything you've heard on our Facebook wall or our blog. Or you can tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Simon Barnard. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.